Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to TVP. As we near the end of our 10-year anniversary celebrations, we have a pair of interesting guests who were actually with us at the beginning of those 10 years. So this week, we're actually welcoming back Jamie Lowry and Ian Kelly, who are former members of the Value Team at Schroeder's, who departed to work at what has been called the Canadian Berkshire Hathaway and for the Canadian Warren Buffett, Prem Watsa, managing their European investment book. They, however, left a lasting legacy on the value team with one of Ian's TVP pieces, Hot Iron Trial by Ordeal, a 13th century lesson for investors, being one of the top-read articles for many years after his departure. Kevin is the host for this episode and knows Ian and Jamie far better than I do, so I'll let him cover their bios. But in this episode, the trio will cover their journey from Schroeder's value team to working for Fairfax Financial and one of the most successful businessmen and investors in the world, Pram Watson. Differences between investing for a long-only fund to working and investing as part of a large insurance organization. Underperformance as value investors within an insurance business company during the very tough years of 2019 and 2020. What beliefs did they form during their time with the value team that have been tested working at a place like Fairfax? And finally, private versus public investments. What are your thoughts? Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to the Value Perspective podcast. This podcast has explored decision-making under uncertainty, it has covered ESG issues pertinent to all investors, and we've recently turned the tables and had clients and former podcast guests interview the members of the team. But today is different. Today we're exploring a subject that should be of interest to all investors, but something that very few investors know much about. My name's Kevin Murphy, I'm the co-head of the value team at Schroeder's. I don't tend to do much on the podcast, but today Juan's handed the keys of the studio to me as we have two guests who I've known for a very long time. Jamie Lowry and Ian Kelly started on the grad scheme at Schroeder's in 2004 and 7, respectively, and were founding members of the Schroeder Value team when we launched a decade ago. Unfortunately for us, both left within a couple of years to embark on a new journey. But let's not jump to the punchline just yet. Let's tease it out a little bit. So, welcome Jamie and Ian. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. I wasn't going to particularly cover your time at Schroeder's, as I imagine that's of less interest to our listeners. But I will start with one anecdote that you might remember, Jamie. On your very first day at Schroeder's, our head of research at the time invited me to come to lunch with you and her. When I asked why me, she said we had a lot in common. What I actually think she meant was that we were both common. And it's definitely <laughs> true we're all slight outsiders on the team, whether it be from our backgrounds, our love of value investing, but we all got on well. All of us on the team got on well. And despite that, you both left us. And the remaining members of the team totally understand why. So for our listeners that don't know him, 
Prem Watts has been referred to as the Canadian Warren Buffett. So can you talk to us about how two normal guys working in London suddenly come to be working for Fairfax Financial, one of the world's preeminent value investing and insurance companies? So the story really starts with Jamie, so you should really... Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, so thank you for having us, Kev. It's a pleasure to be back. So the, the story actually started prior to the value team. So, so I started at Schroeder's in 2004, and one of my roles was as a, an insurance analyst. It was actually a role actually handed over to, to Ian when I became a, a PM. But as part of that role, I actually, we actually had Prem and Fairfax in Schroeder's for as part of the, the normal fundraising cycle. He wasn't okay. raising money, he just, you know, yeah. came in. Uh, and and had, he was meeting the global insurance analyst at the time. Now, as a proper value nerd... You know, I was a, as you'll, you know, you remember, and as yeah. listeners may find out, I'm I'm a big Buffett fan, uh, and I knew a lot about Prem, and it was one of the very rare times I kind of stood up and said to uh, the guy who was global insurance analyst at the time, "Can I just please, can I just take this meeting? Like I've, I've been preparing for years for this, <laughs> my, whole yeah, for my whole life for this moment. <laughs> it was wonderful. You know, we had a, a an hours chat um, about Fairfax the structure, um, to the point that. After that meeting, I had a call from Prem's secretary a week and a half later to say that he had enjoyed the chat so much, would we like to continue over the phone? It was nothing okay. to do. So we actually hit it off quite well. We talked a lot about um, uh, Henry Singleton. Yep. It was, was actually a very, I remember that point in particular, it was a book I'd read called Distant Force, which is one of the very few books on Singleton and Teledyne that mm. we got on very well over, which I'd sent to him. Uh, and we kept in touch okay. over the years. So, you know, I then moved into the value team and so on. And th there was a second very close interaction where I was representing Schroders and went out to Greece during the financial crisis. And Fairfax were very heavy investors in Greece yeah. during the, the crisis in Greece. And it was on that trip where he had said to me, look, we run everything from Toronto at this point. We don't have anybody in Europe. Would you be interested in running everything we have amazing in Europe so that's effectively how that's how the story went amazing and then Ian you joined a couple of years later I did so I joined in 2018 so Jamie left in 15 and I owe you an apology now because <laughs> uh, I was working from home on Fridays before it became popular and not to kind of disparage homeworking but every Friday I'd chat to Jamie for an hour or so about what it's like at Fairfax yeah. and for those that don't know, the name Fairfax is actually a concatenation of fair, friendly acquisitions. And the reputation of the firm is about being fair and friendly. And I'd basically say to Jamie, is it really that friendly? Is it really that nice? Are people genuinely that good to each other? And he said, yeah, it is. It's really, really good. The opportunities here are great. And we just talk over, like we had done for yeah, yeah. our career, we just keep on talking. And uh, he said, eventually, you know what, there's a lot of work here in Europe. We worked as partners in Europe and globally running money. Do you want to be my partner here running European money? Prem's kind of okay with the idea. So I had lunch with Prem in London and we had a great chat. And it turns out that was my interview because Jamie obviously said nice enough things about me. And he said, why don't you come join the firm and just help Jamie run, run European money? And is that the secret sauce then? Because Prem's compounded or Fairfax is compounded uh something like 18% per annum for 35 years mm. or so. Like phenomenal long-term returns. 
And is it that fair and friendly thing that is the secret sauce? Or is there anything else that you would highlight as being the, the key driver behind that? Uh, I'd say when, we'll get on to this probably as we go through the show, but when you are an insurance company uh, and you grow over time, you can become quite sclerotic, quite slow to change. You can uh, have big layers of bureaucracy. And Prem has managed to grow an insurance company that now has 27 subsidiaries, 58 billion in cash investments, without building that bureaucracy. Mm. So all of the insurance subsidiaries have their own president who's responsible for everything apart from their own evaluation, capital management, like dividends and buybacks. Yeah. Not that they can do buybacks, yeah. but dividends and acquisitions and big strategy. Yeah. And they're not responsible for investment. So all the investment stays okay. within Hamblin Watson, which yeah. is an independent entity that, that runs the investments for all of the insurance subsidiaries. So the secret source really is maintaining that agile, nimble structure whilst growing over time. And any management consultant would come in and say, well, that's crazy because you have all this replication through in all of the different businesses. But the offset to that is you do have individual control within your different uh, entities with everyone focused on best practice and learning and and doing the best jobs that they can. Yeah. Uh, it's been a very clear mantra from Prem that there is huge dissynergy as you bring the corporate bloat yeah. into this. So yeah. just to give you an idea, um, in the last year, Fairfax will have written roughly 30 billion of premium, but that's actually split, as Ian was saying, in between individual insurance companies. So the largest would, of those would have been Odyssey um, out of New York, and that's about seven. Um, <clears throat> Allied World would be about seven as well. You know, then we have Crum about five. Brit here in London would yeah. be about four. But they are, and Brit used to be a, a listed company. Yeah, we used to own it in our portfolios. So it, but it is still run as a completely separate business. Mm. CEO, CEO, CFO, HR, it is left alone. And what you get from that is individual entrepreneurship and empowerment yeah. and you get a continuation of this closeness to the customer you know so yeah. they all are responsible for their own P&Ls except for uh, the investment returns which they can't control which we do from from headquarters so you answer your question of what's the secret prem prem's personality is pervasive through the organization and uh, the values are on the website and he preaches those values ad nauseum in a good way but the secret source is that uh, individuality of uh, and the ability to push responsibility down to those subsidiaries. Plus, if you go back to Berkshire Hathaway, the model, when you get it right, of an insurance company yeah. capturing float, you get this yeah. very powerful effect, uh, which is compounded over time. So it might be a good time to turn to the role that you both have. So the, the, the investment function is centralised into Hamblin Watson. You guys look after the European side. Can you talk about your day-to-day -day roles and, and what that involves? So the day-to-day -day role actually is very, very similar to when we were on the value team. So the first thing to think about that people imagine is that when you're running an insurance portfolio, you're running multi-assets. So you're not yeah. just running long-only equities. And on the equity book, we are, we are long-only. So you might imagine it's quite different now. Mm. Actually, the equity book takes up the vast majority of our time and it is run 
essentially in the same way in terms of stock selection that it was when we were in the value team at Schroeder's. So the day-to-day is annual reports and spreadsheets and a model for businesses that looks a lot like one you would recognize. Yeah, amazing. Okay, I didn't realize that. Mm. So, and so how big is the portfolio that you look after? How many holdings, that kind of thing? So the, the equity portfolio itself. Yeah. So uh, again, if you think we, when we came in, we restructured that portfolio as a bunch of individual entities and we pulled that into a common usage vehicle. Yeah. So we now run a European equity fund effectively, that any of these subsidiaries can invest into that would want to, that would want exposure to European equities. Um, and that would be roughly, you know, 20 stocks, so, something of that, which okay. would be slightly more concentrated yeah. than we, I, might, I might have run yeah. European Alpha when, when I was here. Um, but the selection process is effectively the same. Now, I'm sure we'll get on to evolution in philosophy and everything yeah, yeah. else, but the frameworks are exactly the same as when we started back here, you know, okay. twenty odd years ago. And the fixed income size, so I, like Ian, as mm. you suggested, I would I would have imagined from the outside that it was a very fixed income heavy book that you look after, and that that would be just as time consuming. But it sounds like not quite. It isn't. Um, the the difference is being so if you are an insurance company and you're regulated very round numbers and not being a regulatory expert, we're talking broad terms here, you're going to have a substantial fraction of your book, call it 70%, mileage may vary, which is going to be in government debt, which is going to be in liquid investments, which is going to be investment grade credit at the outside. And that's going to be the core of your portfolio to preserve the the policyholders. Ultimately, it's their money and we're responsible to them and to our shareholders. That part doesn't require huge amounts of maintenance because it doesn't make sense for the firm, for Jamie or I to spend hours deciding, do we buy investment-grade bonds of Pfizer or you know AstraZeneca? Yeah. Almost no difference in yield. Yeah. That portfolio, we do look at it periodically, obviously yeah. monthly and quarterly review it, yeah. but the names aren't changing very quickly and the reason you hold them doesn't change very quickly. Okay. Now, we do time to time, and Fairfax has done this very publicly in the past. For example, we'll have a huge amount of cash in the portfolio when yields were very, very low. We've come out of a period when yields were negative in Europe. It doesn't make sense to own, it didn't make sense for us to own German debt with a negative yield for 10 years, so we didn't own that. When that changes, there may be a huge flurry of work, and then we'll change the duration of our portfolio. But once that strategic decision has yeah. been made, okay. it doesn't require maintenance. Okay. It's like worth fleshing that out. So if we talk about the publicly disclosed numbers, how the total portfolio for Fairfax is just under 60 billion. Yeah. And you have today 10, 12% of that's in cash and T-bills. Yeah. Okay, which will be in the safest investments, German or something equivalent here, uh, US Treasuries over and Canadian in, in their relevant jurisdictions. Then you have roughly a third of the portfolio in government debt um, and uh, we'll, we'll come back to that we'll come back to that because that's quite important how decisions are made another 10 would be in corporates so roughly that's 60 percent of the global portfolio is in cash and fixed income yep. we have 20 odd percent in stocks as a whole and then there's a variety of others which are associates derivatives and, and other other stuff that mix is quite unusual it's not quite it's very unusual for a global insurance company you would have a Mm. typical insurance company would have mid single digit equity exposure so be a a much more fixed income heavy organization whereas 
as Ian was saying before, our work still typically starts on the equity side. On the credit side, a lot of the opportunistic stuff comes out of the equity work. You know, we may be looking at something that makes sense or doesn't make mm. sense yet on the equity side, but yeah. we like part of the credit. And part of the evolution that we've made as investors is becoming much better at understanding the links yeah. between the two and the and the capital structures. So I think we don't spend we don't need to spend a huge amount of time reviewing that fixed income book. The only thing I would say to your question about how it works, the decision about duration is normally the biggest one that's made at the, the, the firm. And that is made up at the investment committee level. That would be Prem uh, and Brian Bradstreet, who have been doing this a very long time. It's like, how far along the curve do we want to take interest rate risk? Yep. And you will have seen public disclosures where Fairfax itself has been making, has made huge moves, more than you would see again at a, a traditional insurance company over the last few years. So back in 2011, we had just under 50% of the global portfolio in cash and T-bills, like one year duration. We've now down to 10, as I said, and the duration of the fixed income book is more like two and a half to three years. But the curve shifted. You know, yeah. we're now getting yeah. four or five yeah, percent yeah. on our US Treasuries. Yeah. But that is generally made for the most part up at the investment committee. And then we're responsible for what do we think in is it the same in Europe? Is yeah. it the same in yeah. Poland? Yeah. You know, and the currencies we look okay. after. So I definitely want to come back to some of those aspects you touched on, particularly around the credit crunch and how, how your book changed and your thinking. But before we get there, taking a, a, a brief step backwards, when I think about insurance businesses, particularly because of my biases, I think it seems that value investing and insurance companies go reasonably well together because I think about Fairfax, I think about Markel, I think about Warren at, at Berkshire. Is that just availability bias on my side or do you think there is actually uh, a relationship, a positive relationship, hopefully, between value investing and insurance? I think that's... Um a recency or availability yeah, yeah. bias. Yeah. If you look across the European insurers, yep. which have balance sheets close to trillion euros, we can all guess the names of household names, they typically will have 5%, you know, 6% in equities. And if the market drops a lot, they may add a percentage point. They may take one or two years off their duration at the maximum and, yep. and the opposite being true. And I think that is the the problem of building such a large business is you have layers of CIOs, mm. heads of equities, heads of regional equities, and nobody wants to lose their job, and none of them being paid for the share for the book compounding at fifteen percent. Yeah. So I think my guess is generally with insurance, it's it's not a value investing world. Which, given the compounding that you see has occurred for people who are willing to take the risk, people who are long term investors, is a shame. But uh, I think it's actually an interesting question. And there's an interesting question we've always asked ourselves, which is why you haven't seen more yeah. of these types of businesses in Europe. You know, And you wonder actually why you haven't seen more in the US or, or generally. Mm. I think there is a match uh, in the sense that the, the duration of the work of the asset side that we were doing on the value side tends to be probably longer than a lot of participants yeah. in the market. That matches well with liabilities. Because, you know, once you're not running an open-ended fund, we have effectively permanent capital. Yeah. So we can be patient. You know, we can be patient in a friendly way with existing management teams. So there is that ability to sit down, move across credit into equity and back and forth, yeah. structure 
specific instruments. So our CEO it likes to use the word, uh, it's a, insurance, when you get it right, is a wonderful mousetrap. And it is, it's this wonderful structure that to enable effectively leverage on the asset portfolio. And then we are in this industry and invest in the way that we do because we believe value investing gives you, you know, better risk-adjusted returns over time as long as you are present to enable to ride out yeah, yeah. Those, those ups and downs. So I actually agree with the premise. The more interesting question is why we haven't seen more mm. people take advantage of that. And it's, it's on the insurance side, it's tough. You saw, you know, green light at, uh, with David Einhorn. Uh, and there's, there's a, there was a third point. There's a bunch of people who are very smart investors who have actually found it's been very difficult on the insurance mm. side. And I think... Prem has done a very good job over time of actually moving from more cigar butt investing, which is how Fairfax started on the insurance yeah. side, to more quality acquisitions to make sure the, the presence of float is durable. So a similar journey that Warren and has been via Charlie. At very, Russia. very. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about the the ability that you have now to switch between the debt side and the equity side. How does one decide whether it's the debt that's interesting or the equity that's interesting? Do you ever decide that both are interesting? Would you ever have the equity and the debt? Or how do you how do you go about allocating? Because the work, presumably, is you, you're, you're analysing the cash flows. The cash flows are the cash flows, whether they go to fund bondholders or to the shareholders is largely irrelevant. But how do you guys think about it? So on... I mean, the corporate credit is a relatively small part of the portfolio. And the reality is if you look um, within Europe and you're looking at investment grade credit, so we'll, ex- we'll talk separately about during COVID and 2020, yeah. but today you're looking at if you buy an Austrian government debt, you're going to get 3.2% roughly for three or four years. If you buy an A-rated credit, you're going to add 20, 30 base points to that. So you're you're not shooting the lights out. You want to make sure that's a good business. Do all the cash flow analysis that we would do normally. Understand the term structure of the debt. Understand which entity, because it's yeah. not just the, the tick with the PLC. Yeah. Who's paying you? What's your security? And one, once you've done that, that's relatively different to the equity side where you're looking for absolute upside. Here we're looking, the maximum we get paid is 100 yeah. and our coupon. Yeah. We're looking for absence of downside. Yeah. It was very different in 2000, which was probably a more interesting time to think about because then Prem having built quite an agile organization, very agile organization, everybody shifted to corporate credit, basically. That was where the opportunity was. Spreads were enormous. You know, things were trading at a fraction of par. And then we did a lot of work. And that work was far more upside and downside Mm. related, far more like your typical equity value investment. So, you know, what's our security, but yeah. also how will this thing recover? How can it recover? Yeah. So in 2020, we were also doing the sim- sim- not dissimilar thing. So even though we've got predominantly an equity book, the ability to buy debt we have in certain portfolios and we were making equity-like returns, but taking bond-like risks secured with, with uh, large amounts of protection against uh, bad news. And, and there was plenty of bad news out there, but the upside was that much greater. So... Even <laughs> within our equity books, we were taking bond risk. So presumably for you guys, it was a, a, a wonderful environment to be able to just get hold of those returns that had, had been missing for the previous decade. Yeah, it, it was a busy few months. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the early part of the 
at the pandemic and we were we worked essentially right across the firm to to do that and actually one of the things you we've learned coming out of the equity part has been actually how poor liquidity is mm. in, in in corporate bonds you know it's yeah. been been and again another reason why we don't spend a lot of time in in, in corporate credit then you actually had because you had very uh, heavy flows one way yeah. you could pick pick up decent quantity um you you had this this wonderful mix of you knew the credit you knew the 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 returns yeah. you know you you're happy with the safety of the balance sheet you know so that was but it was all over actually yeah, relatively yeah. quickly so that was two months pretty hard work yeah. uh, and then we haven't spent much time in the credit space since to your question before is do you ever own equity in credit we have done not very often but you can understand if you start and try and understand the structure of an organization and, and you think the equity's beat down, it still surprises me how often the credit markets and the equity markets don't agree. Just yeah. very often, you know, you, you, you look at the lenses and the price and think these are two separate companies and they're not. Mm. You know, so if you buy in the equity and the credit's trading well, um, actually, in some ways, that gives you, depending on the type of institution, it's a, if it's a financial institution, it matters mm. what the credit markets yeah. think. In, uh, industrials less so, yeah. depending what the refinancing terms yeah. and rates are. But you can have a situation where the equity is cheap and the bonds are cheap. And you say, well, if I'm willing to, you know, I'm prepared yeah, yeah. to buy the equity here, why wouldn't I? Why would yeah. I need to go and spend another four weeks learning about something else? Yeah, yeah. I'll pick up the bonds. So we have and would do that. Keeping at the top level, to what extent does the regulator make a difference? on a daily basis to you guys is that all dealt with by different teams at the whole co-level or does it impact what you guys have to do the the short answer is it doesn't impact us day to day and i kind of flesh that out bearing in mind that we have a european purview of this and it may be totally yeah. different in north america yeah. that we've only got a passing acquaintance with day to day we have we have no interaction and no real thought about the regulatory implications of what we're doing because we set out with each of our subsidiaries an investment framework. So they will have an investment agreement with us that says they should invest their portfolio in such a way. We speak to the CFOs of those businesses super regularly, weekly. And if anything changes that we need to know, they need to change shape their portfolio. We're involved with that. But otherwise, we've got a framework that we can work with. Yeah. If we do something big, like change the duration of the whole book, yeah. we'll have a two-way conversation and yeah. see what they can do from yeah. their liability yeah. side. So really, day-to-day, we have no interaction. I've never interacted with a regulator. The thing about Europe that's interesting, when people say, why is there no Berkshire Hathaway in Europe, that despite Solvency 2 being a Europe-wide regulatory framework, there's Solvency 1 regulations yeah. in each in country. So we'll have people in each of our insurance subsidiaries speaking to their local regulator. And often it's a far more principles-based rather than rules-based system. So if you're in North America, you want to run a new Barch Hathaway, the rules are very clear to you. In Europe, it's far more principles-based. Have a dialogue, explain to the regulator what you're doing and why you're doing it. So I guess that explains the centralized investment function allows you that that arm's length to the regulator because the local entities are all the regulated entities they they have an agreement with you guys and then they effectively delegate or outsource the investment management to you and but it means that from an investment perspective uh, you're freed up uh, from from those concerns right? I, I think as Ian said it's it's important to distinguish 
being freed up once you have fully understood yes. the nature of the subsidiary, you know. So there are, and there, there tends to be for each subsidiary, there's a different constraint. So regulatory would be, could be solvency one, solvency two for that subsidiary. It could be rating agencies, you know, S&P or AM Best. Mm. Once you've done that from a regulatory point of view, just as an investment professional, you need to think about the liability structure of, of the balance sheet of what, of the subsidiary you're investing in. So let me give you an example. In in Greece, we have our one and only life company. So Fairfax essentially is a, a PNC company, a non-life company, but we do have um, a large life company. And the way that gets managed is slightly different. We have to be aware of the cash flow mm. natures of the liabilities, the, the policies that are written. And it's, again, it's just understanding how they are likely to come about, what kind of prudence we need on the on the investment side in terms of cash availability, uh, um, liquidity of the bonds, both corporate and and then the amount that's left for, for for equities. So, but once you've done that, you then can go and pick within that framework as we would here. And you mentioned earlier that it's almost captive capital. To what extent is there any tension between the insurance side and the investment side based on the insurance cycle? So, if the insurance cycle is hard, does that does that take away some of the capital pot you have or does it change in any way or is it literally, here's your check, off you go, compound? I would say that's literally above our pay grade. And, okay. and uh, <laughs> so uh, Peter Clark, who's our president, uh, knows the capital frameworks in an encyclopedic way for all of our subsidiaries. And they will have a two-way discussion over here's our opportunity for underwriting, here's what we can get on the investment return. And they will lead us. That's, that's a a board okay. level kind of strategic view and in many ways that the outcome of that is what jamie and i have yeah. to work with okay it, yeah. it is true if you if you look at some of the public discussions we've had up again not talking about europe you can see on some of the prior transcripts that prem and peter have have, have had that has been actually a real constant tension up until today we've had hard insurance markets mm. for a number of years yeah. now but fairfax is um, written premiums have grown substantially over the past 10, 15 years. And it was a very conscious decision made by Prem and Peter to invest um, additional capital in the growth of the insurance franchise. Now, it could have you could have made a decision to do to kind of stop at a certain point and say, no, we're gonna, you know, run a bit more heavy on the equity book or liquidity or anything else. Um, so there is that tension. It tends to be solved by Prem and Peter. And that's a good point to come back to one of your early questions, which is why aren't people compounding at these rates in other firms? And the context for that, and us writing into a hard market, is the hard market was partly created because other people had been running at seven, eight, nine year durations for institutional reasons when they had zero return. Yeah. Yields go up, yeah. they lose our global competitors, 15, 20% of their book value yeah. just because they're remarking their book. Yeah. They have to charge more for their insurance. And we can participate in the market, but we don't have the capital hit. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, one of the uh, Googling the pair of you, I also noticed that once you're working in the environment that you are, you get the opportunity to sit on some boards. So I know, Jamie, I don't know if you're allowed to talk about names or not, but you're currently the vice chairman, no less, of one of your investee companies. And so without talking about the specifics, I mean, how welcoming are companies in general to having investors sit on their boards? I can only, obviously only talk to my experience, and it's been very specific in, in Greece. As I mentioned with the story before and how I got recruited, we, Fairfax were already very present um, in Greece. And 
they were present at a time when not a lot of international investors were present in Greece for obvious reasons. Yeah. You know, they poured a lot of money in um, into Greece into into a variety of instruments at the government level and into individual companies. And you were, of course, because of the nature of the time, they were very welcome. So when I got there in 2016, they've made a lot of friends. So, you know, very specific to my case, they've been incredibly welcoming. So you're right. So I, I sit on a couple of boards. So Gravalli Hospitality, we are building uh, ultra-luxury hotels in Greece. And that was actually spun out of what was a listed company called Gravalli Pro- Properties. That was commercial a commercial property business, which we eventually merged into Eurobank, um, which is another large investment for, uh, for, for, for Fairfax. So I've had experience on both the public side and now on, on the private side. Um, and the answer is, you know, they've been, the boards are incredibly welcoming because it was set up to be, to, to be like yeah. that. But the entrepreneurs that I've had experience of, of dealing with are, and have been world-class. And I am often reminded of the, there's an old Buffettism, which is, you know, I'm a better investor because I'm a businessman. Yeah. I'm a better businessman because I'm an investor. And I had the privilege of sitting closer and being able to watch businesses being built from the inside. Yeah. And you realize, as always, how much, how little you know yeah. and some, how wonderful some of these executives are. But it has helped me on my journey as an investment professional. So that's been, that's been what I'd hoped it would be. And is that the biggest lesson that you've had since you've been at Fairfax, do you think? That, that insight that you've got from being on those boards and from working with the entrepreneurs and the management teams? Or is it just uh, the opportunity to... I, you've had plenty of opportunities. So the prem side, the insurance side, and having to uh, go in the capital structure. And what would you say is the biggest lesson that you've learned from that change in environment from, from running simple, open-ended, long-only equity book? I think it's, I don't think there's any one thing. I think it's the breadth of the experience, the interaction between the, the different elements. You know, running an insurance company is hard, um, and you realize that you realize that from the outside, you can see that from an inside, and you see that when people fail at running an insurance mm. company, then you see how important somebody like Prem is and the importance of culture within an organization. You know, I, I remember I remember starting in this business and being what I consider now to be overly quantitative. You know, I think there's a lot. I've personally grown up in, on my investment journey and been a lot more appreciative of the qualitative aspects of a of a company, whereas I might have, you know, turned my nose up slightly at the word culture when people were presenting it in uh, on Capital Markets days. Actually, I think I'm far more appreciative of how important a culture can be and how important a lack of a culture yes. can be and the interactions of those things. Yeah. So I think those are part of those lessons. What about you, Ian? I think they're very, very similar. So we would always say, or I would say on the value team, that we're far more predisposed to bet on the horse rather than the jockey mm-hmm. you find cheap business and if it's got a superstar ceo or not well that person may leave or mm. someone great may join yeah and ultimately the business is cheap enough and the balance sheet is fine and i have a lot of sympathy with that i also have increasing sympathy with the idea that you should pay a lot of attention to the quality management mm. a good ceo may not leave mm. and all of these things whether it's the term structure of the debt, whether it's ESG, they all come down to how what multiple do you pay one term more, do you pay two terms more? But it does add value. And the people who are not good 
can destroy yeah, yeah. value. Like yeah. none of us would pick, a, probably probably wouldn't pick a fund and not speak to the manager, not try and think about how they will behave in various circumstances. So I think the quality of the management is a thing we pay more attention to. Uh, analytically, I think learning about the debt side has helped us and definitely made us better equity investors. Previously, I would never have looked at that really. would have thought, okay, the business got a certain amount of debt. Understanding term structure, yeah. where it's funded from, those things have added value. So we're looking at a, a, an oil and gas company that I won't name for obvious reasons. <clears throat> and if you didn't understand the debt structure, you'd totally miss the investment case because understanding when its revolver matures, when it's when it's fit, uh, it's got, and then two other bonds that follow very shortly afterwards as a senior secured and a, a junior, and the structure seems very strange, and you're like, oh. Uh, and, and if you didn't understand that, and you didn't appreciate the idiosyncrasies of that, the equity side would be very difficult to, to get to grips with. So I think that's a, that's a journey we've all been on. Um, you guys probably a bit more in depth <laughs> than us for obvious reasons. When you're at Schroeder's, there's a league table every single day, week, month that tells you whether you've done a good job or a bad job. How does Prem or Wade or the the Fairfax institution decide whether you've done a good job or a bad job when you can go anywhere in the cap structure, when you can do that? How do you decide? Or who judges? I mean, ultimately, you know, Wade is the head of Hamblin Watson. And our direct boss, you know, and, and we sit down with him every year to talk about the performance quantitatively. Um, but Prem, these discussions always happen eventually with with, with Prem. Um, whether you do a good job, I think, as it should be, is a mixture of quantitative and qualitative. You know, so we have quantitative targets. You know, there are relative and absolutes over over time but we're also responsible for the man the general management and looking after the, the european subsidiaries yep. you know some of those things you just okay. you can try to over quantify and i think we came through a journey at the start of this asking ourselves how should this is a conversation between us and fairfax how should we do this and we went we, we tried to go in quite intricate detail and actually step back and just said what are we trying to do here eventually we're trying to to grow the asset wealth of the business, you know. So we've actually come back with some very simplistic targets, um, which is basically where we've we've stayed since we've since we've been there. I'd say the thing that's also non-quantitative, uh, which is related to this, like is in twenty twenty when things were very very hard, and everyone was down in absolute terms. The message from Prem to all the organisation was that no one's getting laid off insurance, investment, you know, no one's being laid off, no one's being fired, we've got a great balance sheet, we'll make it through this and we'll thrive on the other side, which we evidence shows we clearly have. Yeah. And that gives you the freedom you might not have in an open-ended mm -hmm. fund, having to speak to clients, worry about outflows, manage their psychology. We were on the front foot straight away. How do we make money from this? How do we protect our shareholders and policyholders? And, and Prem was leading the charge. You know, he's on the white horse at the front with the flags, so, you <laughs> yeah. know, saying there is no, there's no fear at, at that point. He's like uh, a kid in a candy shop. You know, we're on the phone daily, weekly, say, what what we seen? What can we do? You know, and that mentality pervades the organisation. And that comes back to that culture thing we talked about before. It's, it's a wonderful thing to see the guy right at the top because he understands that he's been an investor for his entire career that... When you have a collapse of capital markets, you know, 99 people out of 100 
do what is natural to a human being, which is kind of yeah. hunker down like a hermit in yeah. a shell. And you have these occasional uh, people who have seen it, not only seen it, but felt it yeah. and are willing to override their emotions to say, no, no, when prices go down, this is the best time to deploy capital. You know, but he's not a, a random CEO who's come up the the sales organization or the HR organization or the operational organization. The guy who's been doing it at the professional level for a long time. So again, that freedom was absolute. At no point, we actually launched our internal fund at quite an, an inopportune time. It was launched in the end of February 19. Yeah. You know, and we were deploying cash and capital through nine, 19 and into 20. And it just... As you happen, you know, sometimes you can be lucky and sometimes you can be the opposite. And we were, we were the opposite as we were deploying capital at the wrong time. You know, our relative performance didn't look great at the bottom of 2020. Mm. I didn't have a single, and Ian wouldn't have had a single conversation with Prem or Wade about our relative performance. I didn't feel like we needed to. You know, we were constantly looking for where is the next best place we can push that capital. And it's nice to be on through the other side of that yeah. where things have gone yes. gone well since then. But the stability was important. Yeah. So <clears throat> my next question was going to be, during 2019 and 2020, they were so difficult as a value investor. Even in an environment as supportive as Schroeder's, which has been excellent to the value team, there was a huge amount of pressure. Because 2019, you underperformed an upmarket. 2020, at least the, until the middle of it, maybe until to the end of Q3, you underperformed a falling market. And that's the one thing that a value investing is meant to protect you from, the falling market. And it really didn't. And it was an extraordinarily difficult and challenging time as an investor. But it sounds like for you guys, that absolute conversation and the relative conversation was parked to a degree because of Prem's investment background. The conversation was all internal. Yeah. So to yeah. your point, we did exactly that. So we underperformed having loads of cash and value having a tough time. Launched in 2019, lag behind the market when it's rising, get largely invested, yeah. fall further in the market when it's falling at the perfectly wrong time. Prem and Wade were super supportive. Thankfully, things have turned around really, really well since then. But it still hurts a lot inside. Yeah. So we had a couple of years when the internal monologue, for, for me at least, was really, really tough. But they were supportive and they're the best cheerleaders. And how difficult is it? when? Because last time we spoke, there's no... Hamblin, what's a European office? It's your garages or your offices, and your boss is three and a half thousand miles away, or at least Prem is in, in Toronto. So, how difficult is it to to have that support, to have that camaraderie, to have that the the guy leading the charge? But he's a very long way away. So, I, I think it's what he does publicly. You know, so. Again, if you, you think back to that time, we knew what was ha happening. And fortunately, we'd been through it before professionally here, here yeah. at Schroeder's. So you have some faith that you know that you will be able to ride it out. And you also know the capital's not about to disappear, which is the one thing that can cut your career short yeah. at some point. Even if, you are, if, you, even if you're right, <laughs> yeah. the capital disappears. So you're okay on that side. And so we have conversations in a short space of time when we're doing a lot of the corporate credit stuff in the early part of COVID. But this wasn't like we're having Prem's calling us up weekly or monthly and saying, Are you guys okay? That's not what happened. He's busy. Yeah. You know, he, he's doing yeah. deals here. But you can, when we're listening in and we're, you know, part of the um, investment committee meetings or anything like, it's the same. He's actually more excited 
about that, you know, so let's keep our ideas on the front foot. Mm. What can we find? How are we going to make it? And, yet, and again, just to give you the idea of the structure, we're responsible for the European level. We run the pots of money at the European level. But any great idea then gets mixed up and thrown into the, to the wider organization. You know, can we make this a much bigger position? Yeah. So then we're starting to have those discussions. So it's all very positive. There's no fear. Um, and again, culturally, that was incredibly important. You do have that internal. Everybody does. Mm. Yeah. The, the prior experience is useful. The internal structure is useful. So whilst on a screen... We can see, your, so the daily mark-to-market, we can see now just like we could see back at Schroeder's. Yeah. So we can see what's going yeah. on. But at no point did you feel like we were concerned okay. that we weren't going to be around to yeah. take advantage of it. Yeah, yeah. okay. Hmm. Um, what do you think your biggest lessons of that environment were, particularly, uh, particularly that 2020 COVID bear market? It's hard with the power of hindsight of what yeah. actually happened. Yes. So the biggest bet, clearly, was not betting the farm, borrowing every penny you can at what turned out to be the lows and not having the, a beta of three. So we, I think Jamie and I probably did very well out of it, but you could always have done better. Um, it's, it's, it's tricky. So some of our lessons have been about business quality, and there's a time when actually you don't you don't want business quality. You want the business which is incredibly cheap that balance sheet and cash flow show you can trade through. So it's it's trading off lessons over time. Mm. But in a time like that, with the path the world followed, we we should have just absolutely bet the farm. The the problem was at that point in time, going back at things that we wrote at that point in time, it was far from clear that the wheels were going to stay on the economy in any meaningful way and the consequences of of the pandemic hmm. it's that alternative history yeah. idea you know i don't think if we're honest about it there's no i don't feel any regret in the way we did it if you knew exactly what was going to happen as ian said you'd have said well if this is the path we'd have been far more aggressive in the very throes of it but you didn't know and it is perfectly reasonable to have made a several assumptions which we were doing and saying well if this was going to happen, then we don't want to be going along this thing and, and this thing and this thing. You know, so again, the context you said, so we start the fund in, in 19 uh, and we're trying to invest in a rising market, but a valueless market, you know, yeah, yeah. A, a, a market that's under value underperforming. So that's bad. Then we come out the other side, we just about get invested at the end of 19 and we get hurt the other way. And then coming around the, the other side, we are naturally deploying capital, but are cautious. You know, so we think by this point, we're thinking, what on earth are we doing? You know, we've yeah. got there's three things. We've got them all wrong by, the, by, <laughs> by this point. Why, why on earth does Prem have any yeah. faith in us? But when you analyze these things and are thoughtful about them, it was, we think, the right way to yeah. deploy capital sensibly yeah. towards very long-term goals. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure what did we learn. I think that the process works. Yeah. You know, keep your eye fixed on the long-term prize. Make sure you have durability. This idea of, I know um, you had Tom Gaynor on the, the podcast yes. and he was talking about duration in the sense of an individual investment. You know, and I, I remember, I think Taleb was, uh, has spoken about the, the Lindy effect uh, previously in, in some, some of his books. So the importance of just being there mm. to reap the rewards is such an important concept that gets un underplayed, yeah. you know, and the structure coming back to one of our 
earlier conversations, the structure of the insurance business, if you get it right with a good set of insurance businesses, is that is basically yeah. permanent capital. Yeah. So that, along with Prem, who is willing to deploy in that environment, just gave us the structure we needed to make sure we could trade through. Okay. And so that that the lollapalooza effect that we have from profitable underwriting, the value investing framework, having ample ca- ample capital, those those didn't evolve overnight. So if you go back and read the 86 annual report, 1986, Prem talks about investing in the style of uh, Ben Graham as is a practice by Warren Buffett. Like back then, years or decades ago, you do it for a long, long time. You build the institutional muscle memory of this is what we do in a crisis. This is how we behave. This is how we protect the balance sheet from that crisis. It takes time. And my guess is the exact lessons of these are the stocks or these are the sectors is entirely useless because next time it will be something different. It will be a different crisis in a different way with different impacts. And even if it is another pandemic, it will be different companies or different jurisdictions involved. So my guess is the exact lessons are probably less important than that. Just focus on the process and trust in value. And ultimately, as long as you're patient and you're focused on the balance sheet and making sure that you're protected on the downside, good things will happen. Yeah. I don't, we started as part of this conversation and said, what has changed? I said, actually, the frameworks that we built, you know, prior to, to us forming the value team and then the, the lessons that were embedded in there are still the most important ones. Mm-hmm. To us, the price you pay to enter an investment is the most important factor which will determine the returns you get. I think the nuance that I've certainly learned over time has been about risk, business model risk. Mm-hmm management risk. It's like, do I fully understand those risks, balance sheet risk, you know, so debt, structure of debt. Do I, do I have super confidence that, that this business can survive everything I can throw at it? Operational leverage, financial leverage. And it's thinking through what could happen, those multiple paths Mm. that we talked about before. And I think you live long enough, you see more of them. Uh, I'm probably more interested in history today than I've ever been, financial and otherwise. And you, you, your your world just gets wider. Mm. Um, in some ways, you could it could scare you, but actually, you realise that there's a reasonable spectrum of probabilities. And as long as you take off most of them and invest sensibly, you can deploy capital in that way and expect over a por- across a portfolio decent rates of return, adjusting for the risk you've got in those portfolios. So you talked about the things that you believed that when you were working here that you still believe is there anything that you believed when you were working here passionately that you now think that was wrong i, I was wrong that belief was wrong and i've uh, i've changed i i mean it's a, a slight repetition here but coming back to the management quality yeah. angle what i would i fleshed that out by saying that we are a bit more skeptical of the journeyman ceo the person who used to be head of sales at one chemical company, then they became regional head, and now they're the CEO of a business. For the reasons that we were skeptical of those individuals, because they're predominantly salespeople, they're, they're built to sell and so on, we remain skeptical of that person, but even more so. But there are people who have quite exceptional paths, which I think you don't necessarily pay 10 multiple points of earnings for that, but you do pay attention to what they're doing give them some of the benefit maybe of the doubt we care care more about ownership structures than we used to mm. 
So being a family control business, unsurprisingly, we have seen the direct benefit of family control. So we're kind of attra- quite attracted to family controlled or insider controlled businesses because you are one for one aligned with the ultimate person making decisions rather than the CEO's comp package, which is on EBITDA or EPS. Yeah. Okay. Uh, same thing. It's this idea of evolution. Yeah. Um, so to Ian's point on incentives, again, these are things that we had written down on our checklist as part of the value team. I'm sure you've still got them today. Yeah. What are the incentives? Uh, I still remember a Charlie Munger quote, which is something along the lines of, I've been in the top 5% of my age cohort for the, my entire life in understanding the power of incentives. Mm-hmm. And yet not a year goes by where I don't learn something more and impresses upon me the power of those incentives. And I think, you know, again, it, it was rudimentarily on a checklist. Now I really try to understand, we do really try to understand the backstory. Like, okay, so there's family ownership here, but is it first generation? Is it seventh generation? Do they care? Do they not care? You know, mm. how is it tied up? Is the leverage within that ownership structure? Um, so the power of incentives is incredibly important. You know, I mentioned debt again before. Yes, we always had the stuff, the checklist of it, is there too much debt structure? Do I do I have as much belief that I used to? I think I kind of miss it a little way that the 20-year-old tw- the me was more convinced about how, that I definitely knew about the, yeah. the DCF and the forecast cash flows. I think uh, you grow a little grayer and a little wiser. Not just a I, little. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some of us a little more than others. Uh, and you realize that there are many more paths than you used to, used to realize. So you're slightly more cautious. I have more time or try to give more time to thinking about the quality of the business model, the durability of the business model, and a lot more appreciation for simplicity, mm. actually. I think you may remember this. I, I had a, uh, I used to very much enjoy and actively look for the more complicated situations. Yep. When I say the special sits, you know, <laughs> I remember reading Greenblatt. Yeah, I'm loving um some of his early works and you know he compounding at you know 40 50 percent for how many years and yeah. I think that's that's how we did it and actually after many years of looking at complicated situations most of them are just too hard mm. you know and frankly the market's pretty efficient when you look at most of them a lot of them are just a waste of time and i ironically i think the market often underprices the highest level of genius which is simplicity yeah um I actually think a lot of professional investors, particularly this side of the Atlantic, underappreciate Berkshire Hathaway and, and Buffett. Just the, 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 how difficult it is to do what, what he's done. So I think there's just a more appreciation of the nuances of the art of what we do. I think more controversially, which you may disagree with slightly, which is, let's say we're we're less mean reversionistas mm. than we used to be. So I'd previously look at a business and say, well, the margins of median margins have been this for a decade, had a tough couple of years. And I think now we are digging more into well, the underlying drivers of that toughness. And maybe it's because there was a paucity of growth in Europe that the value stocks became cheaper than anywhere else in the world and the growth stocks became more expensive than anywhere else. Mm. Maybe it's because of that. But when we look at that bottom quintile of value now, we see more more and more stocks now. But I'm not sure it is going to mean revert. Like there really are problems in that business. So yeah. we probably I know that you don't blindly follow mean reversion by any stretch of imagination, but we're a bit more skeptical of that than we used to be in some ways. 
That's interesting. So how do we, how do you go about thinking about what a business is worth then? Is it, presumably, it's not a ruler drawing straight lines into the sky either. You haven't gone totally the other way. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, it's more the case that that's the assumption over the mean reversion. Yeah. Dig a lot harder into what actually needs to happen over the, what tangibly is happening is the pricing of your products X and Y. Just really dig into that, that side of it. N- not that you don't believe in it, but just that we are more skeptical and question more that it can be achieved. And is there any pressure on you guys from a market cap perspective? So you were talking about the good ideas get shared with the the, the whole entity. The, the entity is clearly very large. So does that put pressure on you to focus on some of the larger companies or are you totally free to go wherever? And if something happens to be in that Venn diagram that it might be appropriate for other people you you share? We pretty much have freedom mm. down because the, the European pot is much smaller than the, yeah. the larger pot. And we also have the added advantage, if we want to, of take privates. Yes. Now, 90-odd percent of our work is public and will always be public. But you can take far more illiquid positions and keep it public or do some take private stuff if that's what you feel is appropriate. And Prem is very receptive on any structure where he thinks the risk-reward will benefit Fairfax over the, the long term. Do you buy anything that's already private, or is it only, is it public to private? That's the so you get I, you get public information, and then you decide what to do with that. Because in the private world, suddenly the information or the asymmetry of that can sometimes be. We we don't do uh, as an organisation. We do. Yeah, um, okay. We have a team internally that does tends to do the private equity part of it. Ian yeah. and I are a hundred percent spending time on the public side of it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and to answer your question, there's no there's no pressure to come up with ideas for the wider team. They are vetted by the investment committee and they're gratefully received, but they are an absolute add-on. They're not how we're evaluated anyway. We should be running our pot of money as best we can. But definitely, you know, we've got fifty eight billion of, of assets here. If you've got a good idea that we can put more into, yeah. just put your hand up. Okay. Okay. Well that's been super interesting. It sounds like you guys have managed to fall on your feet i didn't think there was anywhere better to work <laughs> uh, but it sounds like prem is hugely supportive and the entity that he's built is extremely impressive so thank you guys very much for taking the time to speak to us today thank you very much for coming down and um and good luck for the future it's been a pleasure thank you very much Kevin. thank you for having us